0: Hey guys, it's David from GBH. We took a break last week, but we are back. And we are back with Season 2, Episode 4 of Aggie Hoops Weekly. And we're here with a few really quick hits on the four games since we last spoke. But we're going to spend most of our time with an extended conversation about what we've learned in the first month of the season. Uh, A quick aside, you may hear us talking about Admon Gilder's potential return. He has since been confirmed as out for the season. We'll hit that impact in more detail next week, but obviously uh, that's not great news that's pretty much it. Let's roll.
1: Welcome back everyone to Aggie Hoops Weekly. I'm Blake and as always I'm joined by the esteemed basketball writer of Good Bull Hunting, my friend David. And just wanted to let you guys know, we took a bit of a sabbatical last week in light of the holiday and also in light of uh, my wife giving birth to our second child. So we had a quite a busy week last week, and so David and I kind of took a break, watched a little basketball, enjoyed some football as well, a nice victory for the Aggies on that side. But now we're going to go harsher buzz and talk about Aggie basketball and its stretch of four games in eight days. So, David... What are your thoughts coming out of this?
0: Well, first of all, the harshest buzz is your own because you went from your second child, congrats again, to the joy of the, uh, a victory over LSU to what will now be a conversation about what has honestly been some pretty bad basketball. So that's that's the joy you and I get to share today. And what we get to try to share with everybody else is that our team really hasn't played that well. And we're 2-4 and four after our opening six games. And we're in the middle of a 10-day break that affords us a chance to not just recap the games, but to also talk about what we've learned in a larger sense and how we could hopefully change some things moving forward to make this a bit less of a dismal season. Um, But no, in in regards to your earlier point, we did have a four-game stretch in eight days that didn't really go that well. And I don't know. Are you ready to, to jump into it? Should we just should we launch into the four games that have occurred since we last spoke?
1: Yeah, let's give everybody a, a quick recap on you know what happened in these four games and just set the scene a little bit. And then we can kind of talk through a few different topics on observations, what we've seen and kind of go back and forth on that side of things.
0: All right, let's do it. And I am I'm going to try to be quick on these. So we're going to start with the trip to Gonzaga at the time. Gonzaga was ranked number three. And we went up in a true road game in Spokane, Washington. We gave a token good effort in the first half. And then Gonzaga came out after the break and pushed the lead to 34 in the second half with the kind of ruthless efficiency uh, that we would later see when they ended up toppling who was then number one Duke. So uh, that game in Gonzaga, we played out the string and eventually cut the deficit to 23. The final score was Gonzaga 94, Texas a m 71. The takeaway here was partially that we are not ready to play at that level, and partially that Gonzaga might be the best team in the country.
1: They were damn good.
0: If not the best team in the country, they're going to be a, a surefire one seed in the West region. So to me, there's not a ton you can take away from that game. Sometimes you just get blown off the floor, especially on the road. The next two games are a little tougher to stomach, and that's our two games in the Vancouver Showcase. And I'm going to start with the game against Minnesota. We came out of the blocks against Minnesota, and really didn't look that good. I want to make one note here. Wendell Mitchell, this was his first game back, so it was our first chance to get a look at him. He didn't really play that great, but our lineup started to look a bit more... uh, We started shortening the bench, and we started looking a bit more effective in the second half. We had a really good stretch late in the game, and we almost stole this one. We didn't. Minnesota ended up winning 69-64, but there was a five-minute stretch in the second half that, to date, has clearly been our best basketball of the season, and it was a glimpse of what the future might hold what the new lineup might be able to provide so at that point we're still not feeling too great but at least we had a positive stretch in the second half that allowed us to get excited part two of the vancouver showcase now we're playing washington uh, and i'll back up briefly minnesota they were a team finished a uh, pick to finish in the bottom half of the big 12 uh, the big 10 who had kind of overperformed heading into the game washington was the flip of that they had been projected to be a pretty good Pac-12 team and a fringe top 25 team and they had underperformed relative to those expectations heading into this game we came out and looked pretty dang good uh, a combination of us looking pretty dang good in the first half and Washington continuing to struggle uh, we pushed the lead well into double digits in the first half it looked like we might finally have a comfortable P5 victory on our hands and then it all fell apart it was basically an inverse of the Minnesota game so we started strong couldn't hold on down the stretch Washington did end up winning that one 71 to 67 and we were now looking at a I'll call it a a five game stretch where we've lost where we had lost to all four teams with a pulse. We did turn things around slightly in an in an easy paycheck home game against South Alabama. The final margin of victory for us was 12. We won 74-62, but the game wasn't that close. It was well in hand. We pushed the lead to 20 by halftime and it was what you would hope to expect in in some of these easier home games against, you know, paycheck opposition. I'm hoping we continue to see that with Northwestern State and Valpo and Texas Southern later in the month. But that's my quick recap, is that we had three losses, all varying degrees and various types of losses, and then a home win where we took care of business.
1: Yeah, so after that, Aggie basketball sits at a 2-4 and record with wins over South Alabama and Savannah State, losses to UC Irvine, Gonzaga, Minnesota, and Washington. So at this point, you have a lot of questions, right? You kind of have to sit back and assess the, the picture and say, okay, what have we seen in the first six games that makes us feel comfortable about what we might see going forward? What have we seen in the first six games that scares the crap out of us about what we might see going forward? I think that there's really four topics that we want to cover. First is style of play. Uh, second is the rotation. Third is the overall results. And then... Finally we'll jump into kind of looking ahead, taking a look at the larger picture outside of just AM basketball, looking at you know the conference and the picture around the country to see where does AM fit in, what what might we expect for the rest of the year?
0: And we're gonna do the you guys, the listeners, we're gonna try to do you a service. What we wanted to avoid, it was important to us that we didn't just drag y'all down for half an hour. So for each of these four topics, one of us, one of the two of us is going to make a game attempt to sell y'all on optimism so we're gonna try in each of these four areas someone's gonna try to spin it and someone's just gonna tell y'all how it is and hopefully the spinner can a predict the future and b make things at least a a bit better to listen to because we got to be honest we're we're trying to sell a two and four product after six games so it's not going to be completely sunshine and rainbows, right? It, there's, going to be, there's going to be some rough stuff coming, but we will try to find the good that we've seen in our, in our repeated viewings of these games, and we're going to try to pass that along where we can find it.
1: Okay, so style of play. I'm going to take the optimistic stance here and say... Please, that, yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, thanks, I appreciate it. I, I, think, I think A&M is slowly starting to figure this out. We talked about this several times earlier this season. This is a radical departure from the, the style of play that A&M has had in the past. It's going to take time to adjust. You're also facing an uphill battle because you've had you've had such a large change in the personnel associated with this program. You've had a couple of assistant coaches who are no longer here. You've got a whole host of new new incoming players. So there's a lot of moving parts and moving pieces. That being said a m has been in every game that they've played except for the one against Gonzaga. Hey, you, you, you got beat by 23 against the number three team in the country that eventually became the number one team in the country who hasn't been destroyed by, by a team of that caliber. Gonzaga deserves that ranking. So, yeah, you've got three losses that were all relatively close and they were all games you had a chance to win and your style of play actually helped facilitate that. You've seen it at different points in the game. A&M may start slow, but then they'll they'll kind of get into the rhythm and figure it out and get going. Once guys kind of get in the rhythm of the game and figure it out, it becomes a more natural transition. And I think you're I think you're seeing that in the games as they flow through. You start to see a make more progress. And we talked about South Alabama, that kind of being oh the game was well in hand, twenty point lead at halftime. With eight minutes left in the first half, Annam was down in that game. So, once again, it took them a while to get into the rhythm of the game, but once they get settled, once they get going, then things start to flow a little better. And that's not unexpected. In a situation where you're running a new offense, you're trying to adapt to a different style of play. I think that we have had some benefits here. Our pace has caught other teams off guard. There's not a lot of tape on us running this offense. So we we have had that advantage. People aren't quite sure what to expect. And you're starting to see certain key players evolve in this role. TJ Starks is figuring out how do I balance scoring with facilitating for others. Savion is starting to step into his own and become a more consistent player. There's still ups and downs there, but I think you're starting to see he's evolving into this style of play. Ultimately, I think the biggest reason for optimism is we haven't seen Admon Gilder yet. When Admon comes back, if Admon comes back...
0: Yeah, (laughs) I don't know about all that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and I'll I'll let you you run through that one. But if and when Admon is available, I think this is going to fit his game really well. Especially with having TJ out there to complement his style of play. I think you've seen Mekawulu do some nice things. He fits in the offense really nicely. You don't have to run everything through him like a traditional big man. So he's he's able to adapt. Same with Nebo. Nebo is a great fit in that regard. He he has the ability to just kind of ebb and flow with the game. When Starks attacks the rim or when Chandler attacks the rim, and then they get they draw the double team and dish it off to Nebo, Nebo's there ready to throw down the hammer. So from that regard, I think that you've got a decent set of personnel here that that fits your style of play and they're growing into it. It's taking time. It isn't what we had hoped it would be in terms of we hoped that they would take to it immediately. We haven't seen that, but it's, it is evolving and you are seeing progress there.
0: Okay, so there are nuggets of truth in what you said, but I'm going to have to get ugly real quick here. Uh, we can't shoot the basketball. After six games, our three-point percentage sits at 24.2%. Uh, we're 31 for 128, which puts us at three hundred and forty-second out of 353 uh, D1-eligible basketball squads. And that's the impetus, the, the drive, the linchpin for the new offensive attack was find a quick shot and shoot. Find a quick shot and shoot. To your point, we've done a decent job at realizing that we can't shoot and starting to push that aggressiveness into actually attacking the rim but anytime anybody slows us down on defense we're hosed anytime we have to run a half court set nobody respects the outside shot everyone collapses that removes the ability of Mekawulu who's our only consistent post option he no longer has room to operate and what we're left with and what we consistently see are possessions where TJ Starks either has to create for himself or create for other people and even though he's getting slightly better at it That world, that context, it just hasn't been good enough this year. And I really don't see a way out of it. And my concern is that six games in, this might be who we are. Maybe we just can't shoot. I don't think it's a cold streak. I think it's just a team that might have a collective group of guys that are 25% from beyond the arc. So that's the thing I can't get around. I can't ultimately, I can't get there with the style of play as long as we just can't shoot the basketball.
1: And that's absolutely fair. The, The shooting is definitely a concern, especially shooting from deep. It's just not going well at all from beyond the arc, and you have to hope that, that things can turn around. I think you've seen flashes uh, in a couple guys, especially Brandon Mahan, but I think he has to get more comfortable in the game, and I think that he's going to be really the one who helps drive our, our field goal percentage from the outside. It's Savion Flag as well. I think Savion's got a nice shot. He's got the potential to help us recover. But if you're relying on Starks and Chandler to shoot 40% from the outside, good luck. Yeah. That's just not their game. So in the absence of Gilder, who is shown to be a reliable shot maker, it's going to be down to Mayhan and down to Flag at this point.
0: Well, let's pull on that thread. Let's expand this to discuss the rotation, what it started as and what it has become. You want to stay positive? Yeah. Let's let's keep it this way for one more. So... All right. Sell me. sell Sell me on the new world.
1: Okay. So... I think you've seen the evolution of this rotation, especially in the last couple games. There was one aha moment against South Alabama where Wendell Mitchell or Chuck, I'm struggling here. Mm. I usually espouse the the coming to America philosophy of his mama named him Cassius Clay. I'm going to call him Mm. Cassius Clay. But Mm. uh, in this case, since everyone seems to be calling him Chuck Mitchell, I'll try to adapt to Chuck. So they put Chuck at point. They ran Starks and Chandler. As the off-the-ball guards and played flag as a stretch four, who actually was playing more kind of as an off-the-ball guard himself. He, he wasn't really in the post. He was actually playing more on the wing. And then you had Chandler kind of on the baseline running the baseline. So that was really the turning point whenever that lineup got into the game against South Alabama that's where things really took off. Mm -hmm. And that's where A&M opened that gap. As I had talked about, But with about eight minutes left in the first half, they were actually trailing in the game by, I think, four points. And then when that lineup kind of came into the game, when that rotation got there, things really accelerated. So at that moment, I said, aha, there we go. Okay, that's something that works. It didn't have to stay with that lineup the entire time. But you definitely saw Mitchell's ability to to direct the offense. He didn't have to have the ball in his hands to get things going. It allowed TJ to work at a different angle on the perimeter and try to do some other things to free others up and facilitate. Because that's the one thing I feel like in the earlier iterations that you saw in the season, TJ was struggling. Because, you know, as we talked about, okay, they're figuring out the style of play, but who was TJ going to facilitate for, It is really what the question became. Who was going to be out there that he could provide some assists to whenever he drew a double team? Mm-hmm. Mekawulu has done a nice job of establishing himself as the starting post player on this team. Josh Nebo has gone through a bit of a dry spell. He got into foul trouble in a couple games, really hindered his, his impact on the game. You hope that he's starting to figure that out. I've been really impressed with J.C. in the front court. You know, I wasn't a big fan of his coming in. I really saw him as a weak spot in this lineup. I think he's actually a pretty serviceable third post player. And whenever it's interesting, he and John Walker have developed kind of this tandem approach to post play. Walker is not great when the other team is going to run a, a traditional two big man offense, you know, with a, with a true power forward in. But if you put a stretch four out there, somebody that, that isn't gonna go bodying up Walker, Walker actually will hold his own. He he does yeah, he a pretty decent job. He can play. Uh you know, if he if you want him to get down and bang around on the inside, that's a tall task. That's a tough ask for him. But in those situations, you can bring Isaiah JC in. He can bang around on the inside. He's not gonna be great stepping out, guarding a, a stretch four, but he can cover things on the inside. He's he's actually shown more in this go-round, and I think you're starting to see him feel like he's more involved and starting to go in the right direction. As I mentioned before, Brandon Mahan has shown flashes. He had a really nice game against Minnesota. He actually led the team in scoring. He was the catalyst for A&M getting back in that game. They had been struggling, were down by double digits, and then Brandon Mahan went off, and you started to see him really step into that role. He's he's become the starter for kind of that three-guard position, along with Chandler, Starks, and Flag and Mekawulu. So you're, you're seeing some guys kind of step to the forefront in the absence of Gilder, and I think you're starting to feel a little bit more comfortable with there is a defined rotation. You do have a pecking order. We're not having to demand that Chris Collins play 20 minutes a night Sorry, Chris Collins, it is what it is, but I think Chris Collins is a great player, but at the same time, when he's in the game, you're looking at at that as, okay, he's going to take care of the basketball, he's not going to turn it over, but you're not going to get a lot of scoring from him. I think you have some guys here who who can pose an offensive threat and can actually put some points on the board. So
0: this, you're closer with this one. And again, it's not your ability to argue. It's what you're given to argue. (laughs) This is closer to an actual positive outlook on the future. What I mean by that is there will be some games where this new look rotation works. I believe that. I'm not going to pretend to argue that that's not true. But where I think it'll fall short, and I think we're... It really places our ceiling at, you know, middle of the pack SEC at best is that it only works in the context of a world where we don't have any injuries and we don't have any significant foul trouble. So, yes, in that world, in a perfect scenario, what you've described, I do think it would work. I think we have seven solid contributors and two fringe guys in JC and Walker. You know, that group of nine can mold to fit a game and you can put different lineups on the floor to handle whatever the opposition is throwing at you. But where I don't think we're going to hold up is if, uh, if at the first time of asking, someone is asked to do something they're not comfortable with. If Isaiah Jc's on the floor against a team that's trying to play quick. If, to your point, Walker is trying to body up a, a big, you know, a big guy. If 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 a strong four and five are on the floor at the same time, or if we're just in a situation where Starks or Chandler or, you know, two of our more aggressive guards are both in foul trouble at the same time. I don't think the leftovers in that world. So whoever's left behind, I don't think they're going to be able to get it done. And so I think what we're going to end up with, I think a perfectly plausible scenario is a season like we had, I'll call it four or five years ago, where if everything went right and we weren't playing someone amazing, we can win, you know, and that, that, that sort of setup can yield a seven and 11, eight and 10, you know, six and 12 type SEC season. But what we don't have and what we won't have this year is the depth and the versatility to string together a four-game winning streak, a six-game winning streak, to take on all comers of various sizes and styles and uh, talent levels, and to be able to deal with all of that. So I think you're right in a perfect world. I think in a perfect world the rotation you're describing moving forward works, but you and I both know that's not college basketball, and it's especially not college basketball after the Christmas break when you start playing every three days. I think the grind's going to get us, and I think that's ultimately going to be what, what sinks us in terms of personnel.
1: Yeah, I think you're probably right there. Once again, this is all largely dependent on the ultimate question of whether Admon Gilder is in this rotation or not. And mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable, as, as much as I try to throw on my used car salesman hat, I'm clearly not a used car salesman. I don't hmm. feel comfortable with this premise that we're going to be okay if Gilder's not on the floor. Especially once you get into conference play, you've got to have that guy providing that stability and if he's not there you know that one extra guard can make a world of difference and especially when it's a, a player of the caliber of Admon Gilder when he's not there it, it's a really scary proposition
0: it is and it was the basis for a lot of my optimism and there are some coded words that, you know the indefinitely the we found other things we the the, the press release that came out associated with Gilder's announcement It just feels like this is something else. It feels like, I I don't know how to phrase this exactly, but I feel like if it were basketball-related, they would have been more forthcoming with the style and duration of the injury. And the fact that it was so nebulous and so gray and that they used the word indefinite makes me think that we're not seeing him this year. And I I don't know this for sure, but we're usually pretty... Uh, you know, we're one of the. I don't. Know, I don't know if we're one of the more open. That implies that I know how how other college basketball programs operate. But we're. It feels like we're relatively open in terms of our. Agreed. Injuries. Yep. We we will announce it late. We will announce it five minutes before tip. But generally, there's a sense of how hurt somebody is. So, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. But I am, preparing personally for a season where he does not make a single appearance.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you if you caught this. There was a game early, and I believe it was the, it was either the Savannah State or the U C Irvine game. But Will Johnston made a mention of tendonitis for Admon Gilder, tendonitis in the knee.
0: He made it. He made mention of, but I believe it was a complication as a result of what they were doing for that tendonitis. Is what I thought. That's where I thought he landed on that.
1: Right. That's exactly it. So. Okay. It, it makes me wonder, is Will Johnston just saying this because is he pulling back the curtain for us and telling us what's actually going on, or is he putting this out there to just make everything better, make it all go away? Oh, it's just tendonitis, a little bit of a complication. He'll, he'll be okay. Everything will be fine. Make sure to buy your season tickets, everyone, because once again, Will Johnston is an employee of texas a <laughs> athletics so mm-hmm. you know there is a vested interest to to put out information and to build the narrative that you want to build there so i'm not i'm not saying that there's anything unethical or untoward going on it's just it's one of those things where you could see how they're going to try to paint a rosy picture of the situation
0: that and it's It's what is not said that I find intriguing. It's how much that is that was not said. Agreed. And I'll just leave it at that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, let's go to topic number three, and and this time I'm going to take the load from you. I'm I'm not going to make you spin a a two and four product. I'm going to spin a two and four product. So let's talk. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, you can take a little break. So let's talk results. Let's talk about. The four games I blew through earlier, the first two, the overall picture, the two and four record, who we've played, yada, yada, yada. I think you can split this season as small as it has already been. I think you can split it into two categories. I think you can split it into a world with Wendell Mitchell and a world without Wendell Mitchell. The world without Wendell Mitchell was our opening three games. A lackluster win against Savannah State, a heartbreaking choke job at home against UC Irvine, and the game against Gonzaga, where when they were trying, they pushed the lead to the mid-30s. Those are the three games without Wendell Mitchell. What did that do? It put Chris Collins on the floor more often. It put even more pressure on TJ Starks as the only guy that could create and get to the rim. Mitchell, for some of his other shortcomings, can get to the rim. He hasn't finished that great yet, but he can at least create. He puts the defense on its heels. And the the general rotation to some of your earlier points, which is weird. I'm now piggybacking off of your earlier points. The rotation has looked better. And when you look at it at a macro level, with Mitchell back, we've been pretty good in these last three games. We had... Like I said, still what I consider our best stretch of the season with Mitchell in a game where he didn't really play that well. In the game against Minnesota, we really pushed the pace. We looked great for a seven to ten minute stretch in the second half where Minnesota was reeling and we, you know, we dang near had a chance to close that game out. We looked really good in the first half against Washington, who, like I said, might be a tournament team, was certainly seen as a top twenty a fringe top twenty-five team in the preseason. And then we took care of business in this home game against South Alabama. So even though South Alabama pushed that lead From the 20s back to 12, by the end of the game, it was still really comfortable the entire time. I'm comfortable looking at that block of three games and deriving comfort from that block of three games and separating it from the first three. That's what I'm asking the people who are listening to do, because the addition of Wendell Mitchell for 20 to 25 minutes and the knock-on effect that has had on everybody, how it changes everybody's role or their amount of time ever so slightly, all these things have made us look better in the last three games. Now, obviously, we lost two of those three, and we lost the only two against Power 5 opposition. I'm not going to try to spin that as great in news, but I think what we're heading towards is a world where we will be competitive against most of the teams in the SEC. And in a certain sense, all you can ask for in a college basketball game is to be in it and close late, and then just a better team on the day will execute down the stretch and win that game. So if we can... Build on this one. if we can use this new rotation to put ourselves in close and late game situations as many times as possible and to try to minimize the amount of times we get blown off the floor, which was, like, to be honest, my concern three games into the year, then I think we'll have something we can build on.
1: I don't want to use your own words against you.
0: Yeah, go ahead. But,
1: <laughs> but the word choke, the choke job against UC Irvine. Mm-hmm. I feel like Minnesota and Washington – were choke jobs in and of themselves. You had both of those games clearly in hand. Let's take Minnesota. Brandon Mahan went on an absolute tear to get this team back in the game. He raced a double-digit deficit. The Aggies clawed their way back in on Brandon Mahan's shoulders. And then for the last five minutes of the game, he touches the ball exactly three times. None of those were in an offensive position to actually score. He touched the ball three times in five minutes after he had hung seventeen points. I I I don't have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah, it's very much an old school Will Ferrell. Is this bad? Yeah, it's bad. You just this team has struggled with consistency, and really the only player who's been consistent to this point has been T.J. Starks. Not unexpected. The guy was second team All SEC. Okay great, but you haven't seen consistency out of Savion. Uh, Savion has actually kind of disappeared for a few games, which is what we were afraid would happen when he met up with serviceable competition. He looks great against the inferior foes and then kind of wilts under the the spotlight and against the, the power five schools. That's, that's worrisome. All in all, the team still looks lost. Billy Kennedy looks lost. It's not comforting to hear announcers on TV say, well, we talked to Billy Kennedy and asked him about his team, and he's said he's really not sure what he has. Yikes. That's, that's way to way to instill confidence in your team there. I feel like they, they've taken a major step back. We knew that they would. We knew that this was a transition year. We knew that you were dealing with transfers and grad transfers and, you know, guys coming in from a lot of different destinations. It was kind of this, this team is, became a little bit of the land of Misfit Toys, but I didn't expect a full regression like this. Billy Kennedy last year did a wonderful job, and we marveled at this several times, running inbounds plays, drawing up inbound plays to get the ball inbounds in a, in a good scoring position. Where has that gone? You can't tell me that the guys we had were so transcendent at running inbound plays that those no longer work. Set plays are one of those things that if they work, you should be getting open looks. We were getting open looks in terms of like fourth grade. Layups and dunks. Yeah, Yeah. fourth grade, little dribblers, wide open looks, you know, layups. Now we can't get an open shot. Every shot is contested. You've got a hand in your face all the way around. So I, I don't really, I don't understand how we've taken this far of a step back. The inability to close out games where you had three games in your four losses that, that you had control of. You had a legitimate opportunity to win and all three of those games turned out to be losses. That's not an encouraging trend. That's a really scary trend for what what's coming around the corner when you get to conference play.
0: Yeah, you're you're not wrong you're not wrong on that front. It was three close games and three close losses. And in all cases, we didn't make the plays we needed to down the stretch. So there's no denying that. What I'm hoping is that at least hopefully sometime in the next few weeks, we can win a close one down the stretch and start to build some positive habits and show the fans what a a late and close win looks like to remind them what that looks like. Because That's when basketball is fun. (laughs) All we've had is we've had two blowout wins and one blowout loss and three heartbreaking losses. So hopefully we can package that and deliver it to people in the near future. But let's uh, let's wind down here. Uh, I don't think this area will take long. I I, want to have one more mini debate, if you will, and we'll just call it the moving forward section. What does the future look like? And I want to take the pro here again because I've looked up some pretty interesting statistics on how the SEC has performed so far this year relative to expectations. Coming into the year, we had five, and depending on the poll, six top 25 teams, other teams receiving votes. We were we were talked about the SEC as a school that could get eight or nine teams into the dance. It was seen as a loaded conference. Uh, and even at the top, which isn't the last year, we were loaded, but we were loaded in depth. We didn't have that many really good teams at the top. This year, we had three top legitimate top ten teams across the board: Tennessee five, Auburn eight, Kentucky two. That was the preseason ranking. So we were seen as a conference that had depth, talent at the top. You know, maybe pushing the ACC for overall college basketball supremacy, if you want to call it that. And the first three weeks haven't gone great. Part of my trepidation and all and all the preseason stuff that we did was based on the fact that I thought the SEC was going to perform to that level of expectation. And so what I'm going to try to sell is the positive image here and the positive perspective is so that the SEC might not be that great. We're not that far into the year and seven SEC teams already have multiple losses. And believe it or not, Blake, all 14 SEC teams already have a loss. Usually you'll, you'll find someone who just kind of cakewalks their way through an easy November and an easy first half of December to eight or nine and oh, you know, even someone who's not very good. But we hit nobody's done that. Everybody already has a loss. And I'm going to walk you through Six pretty pitiful SEC losses that we've already managed to to add to our repertoire, if you will. We had the UC Irvine game over A&M. Obviously, that's one. Uh, Northeastern beat Alabama by 16. Georgia State beat Georgia by 24. Stony Brook beat South Carolina by 2. Wofford beat South Carolina by 20. Get it together, South Carolina. And then Kent State uh, beat Vanderbilt by 2. That's six paycheck losses that the SEC has already acquired. But it's not just those teams. So, yeah, those are kind of back-end teams that we figured wouldn't be very good. But Florida, LSU, and Mississippi State, you know, they've taken care of their paycheck games. But all three of those teams were seen as top-half SEC squads. And they've all basically failed at every time of asking. So they have the type of record where, yeah, you win at home against the crap teams. And then every time you play someone good, you lose. So I don't know how to assess them really either. And even across the board, and at the teams that do have some quality wins to their name, there have been plenty, more than our fair share, of poor non-conference tournament results. So if I have to hang my hat on something, I might hang it on the fact that the SEC just might not be that good.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And the SEC probably is not as good as, as they were certainly last season. You've got four teams in the top 25. Of course, the the three that you mentioned earlier, Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee, and then you've got Mississippi State sneaking in at 25. So, yeah, I think you're right. But as you mentioned, every one of the 14 teams in the conference already has a, at least one loss. However, only one team has a losing record. Hello, Texas A&M. So, <laughs> we did
0: it. Did we win?
1: Yeah, yeah what's our prize? Um, your prize is to run through the gauntlet of a, a pretty mediocre conference and probably finish at the bottom. No, I, I say that. I do think that there are wins to be had in this schedule. Yeah, I think South Carolina is going to be uh, an opportunity where you can pick up a game. You know, there's going to be some, some get teams along the way, actually some that are somewhat surprising. I'll, I'll go a little bit off task here. AM has four losses, okay? Three of those losses came to either... Uh, you know, a team that is now number one in the country or power five competition. Most other teams at this point in the year have played maybe one power five game. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly not two, certainly not three games of the caliber of competition that A&M has played. So I will give A&M that credit to say, Hey, look, at least they went out and sought out some, some higher level competition. But, the fact of the matter is, is you're still walking away from that with with four L's in your back pocket. So I, I don't know. I don't feel good about where things are headed right now, especially once again, with the question marks around Admon Gilder and whether he's going to be available for conference play.
0: Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we can start to wrap it up is that even in the context of my SEC is bad diatribe, we're still not that well positioned. So that's, something i think that it's important to mention and spoiler alert we both went to the edges on many of these topics i think in truth we are pretty much in lockstep on the type of year we're going to have we just agreed that would make for terrible radio so we didn't we didn't approach the discussion that way uh, but it is it's, it's it's what we're looking at we're looking at you know barring something really significant occurring that i couldn't even begin you know barring it would take Admon walking through the door and and giving us 30 minutes of quality guard play for the rest of the season short of something like that it just feels like even something like the NIT is our ceiling I just don't see us breaking into a top seven seed in the SEC even I I just don't see the I don't see the path so maybe that's how we can how we can end this one is that we actually despite the last 30 minutes I guess we do kind of agree on where we're headed
1: yeah, I think you're right, and I think at this point, staring down the barrel of what we're we're looking at, honestly, I would feel like making it to the NIT would actually be a pretty positive step for this group. I would think that you know to get to that level, you've actually shown some pretty r- remarkable improvement over the course of the season to get to a point where you could make the NIT, because that would indicate that you were on the bubble for the NCAA tournament. Or at least yeah. within striking distance of, of being a tournament team, and if that was the case, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I I don't see that being feasible, but uh, crazier things have happened. So
0: I guess we can we can reconvene next week. Our next game is Monday, December third, against Northwestern State. I feel pretty comfortable calling that one our easiest remaining game. I think that that one in Texas Southern will be the the two true walkovers where we better see some walk-ons get some time, right? You don't want your starters playing 30 minutes in those games. But there are some interesting home games mixed in there, uh, along with a, a road trip to Oregon State. So I think we're going to learn a great deal over these next six games, and then it's, and then it's conference play, and then it's conference time. So we'll talk again maybe after the Northwestern State game, certainly after the Boston College game, and hopefully we have some good news to share.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just a couple other quick housekeeping items. So for those of you who have been listening for a while, we, we changed podcast providers. So now we are actually listed on almost all of your favorite uh, podcast apps. So don't hesitate to go out, search for us, subscribe. We're on iTunes podcast addict stitcher google play you name it we're probably on there you can search for aggie hoops weekly and and it should come up we'd love to have the subscribes so don't don't hesitate to go that route and try to find us if if you come up with a podcast player or a podcast service that we're not listed on let us know we'll we'll do everything we can to get added there to make it easier so that you guys can get to us as quickly as possible so next week we will probably do a an episode after the Northwestern State game because it is a Monday game. It'll throw off our plan to to have an episode posted on Tuesday similar to this one. We're we're kind of hitting that weird point in the schedule where it's not quite as predictable and and our our recording dates kind of hit on off days, but we'll we're working through that and so we we hope to have the next week's episode should probably be posted on Wednesday.
0: I like the plan. I have nothing really to add except to say We better be discussing a win next week.